0: When we call mosquitoes the deadliest animals on Earth, we aren't just talking about human deaths. Mosquitoes have played a major role in Hawaii's designation as the endangered species capital of the world. To Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. A member of the Agora Podcast Network, I'm Raven forrest Riscalzo, your host. This is episode 42, Malaria Islands. Listener Mark Whitaker asked, how big of a problem is avian malaria for island birds? Like human malaria, Avian, or bird malaria, is caused by a parasite. These parasites, a family of single-celled organisms called plasmodium, or one of their relatives, are so tiny they actually live and reproduce inside of the red blood cells of their host. This replication destroys the red blood cells that the animal needs to transport oxygen in and CO2 out of their bodies causing a condition called anemia. Also like human malaria, avian malaria is transmitted from one animal to another by mosquitoes. The type of mosquito is different, though. Human malaria is transmitted by a family of mosquitoes called anopheles, while the Culex family transmits plasmodium to birds. Mother birds can also pass it on to their offspring before they lay their eggs. Interestingly, avian malaria parasites can change the behavior of Culex mosquitoes. When they are infected, they feed longer but don't take in as much blood, giving the parasite more time and more chances to be transmitted from the mosquito to a new host. It is one of the most prevalent and most thoroughly studied bird parasites. Because of this, much of what we know about human malaria came first from studying the disease in birds. In fact, the first disease ever found to be transmitted by a mosquito was avian malaria. The revelation made in 1897 led to a cascade of new discoveries. Other turn-of-the-century researchers who were struggling to figure out how diseases were being spread started to look at mosquitoes and other bloodsuckers, too. The true scope of what we now call vector-borne diseases started to come to light as one human or animal disease after another was discovered to be spread by these tiny vampires. After that first 1897 discovery, the transmission of the plague by fleas was identified in 1898. Mosquitoes' transmission of yellow fever and filariasis in 1900. Typhus' transmission by body lice in 1909. Leishmaniasis' transmission by sand flies in 1921. And the discoveries continue to today. After the recognition of malaria's transmission by mosquitoes, our knowledge of malaria prevention and treatment was given firm footing, allowing for our incredible advancements, like its eradication in the Americas and Europe, and the medications we use to cure or prevent the disease where it still exists. Getting back to Mark's question, what's the deal with avian malaria on islands? Islands, especially ones that developed from volcanoes or reefs, can be perfect examples of what we call naive populations. The plants and animals on these islands had to travel from somewhere else. Floating, swimming, catching a ride on floating debris, or flying. Every organism on these islands evolved from one of these pioneers. Because their ancestors were either never exposed scientifically referred to as naive, to one of these diseases, they are highly vulnerable to them. Even if one of the pioneers had the genetic chops to be resistant, their offspring can live so long without the pressure from that disease, they dump their ancestral immunity as just evolutionary baggage. For this reason, island birds that live their whole lives on their island are hit hard when humans bring avian malaria in or bring the birds onto the mainland. Cuba, New Zealand, Malaysia, Solomon Islands, New Hebrides, and the Galapagos are all tackling avian malaria issues. The zoo in Beijing lost 53% of their fledgling cranes to malaria. It's also not just a problem in the tropics. In England, London lost 71% of their house sparrows to avian malaria over the course of 24 years. But the place that has been hit hardest by these parasites is Hawaii. The extinctions and near-extinctions of many members of a family of songbirds called honeycreepers, found only in Hawaii, has contributed to Hawaii's designation as the endangered species capital of the world. It's no coincidence that the Hawaiian islands are the most isolated island system in the world. This created a unique environment where the organisms living there could become highly specialized to their environment, evolving them into hundreds of unique species. The malaria parasite wasn't actually new to Hawaii when European colonizers came across the island for the first time. For thousands of years, migratory birds stopped in Hawaii, many of them carrying the parasite with them. But the honeycreepers never were infected because the islands were completely free of mosquitoes. The parasites had no way to get out of their mainland hosts and into the island birds, like taking a flight to a new country but never being allowed to leave the plane. Then, in the 1820s, Not long after Europeans came to Hawaii for the first time, a settler wrote,
1: Dr. Judd was called upon to treat a hitherto unknown kind of itch, afflicted by a new kind of nalo, or fly, described as singing in the ear. The itch had first been reported early in 1827 by Hawaiians who lived near pools of standing water and along streams back of Lahaina, Maui. To the Reverend William Richards, the description of the flies suggested a pestiferous insect, from which hithertofore the islands were fortunately free. Inspection confirmed his fears. The mosquito had arrived. Investigations backtracked the trail to the previous year and the ship Wellington, whose watering party had drained dregs, alive with wrigglers, into a pier stream, and thereby to blot one more blessing from the Hawaii that had been eaten. Apparently, no attempt was made to isolate and destroy the hatchery, nor to prevent the spread of the pest throughout the archipelago. The pioneer was Culex quinquefasciatus, the night mosquito.
0: The Wellington's stop, just before arriving in Hawaii, was northern Mexico, where the tropical form of Culex thrives. As an interesting side note, there are, probably apocryphal, stories that the Wellington's crew actually dumped the mosquito larvae on purpose as revenge for the enactment of, quote, anti-vice laws. Culex quincafasciatus larvae can survive in 30% seawater, so the coastal regions of the islands were ideal habitat. Plus, they're strong flyers, capable of traveling for 14 miles, so they spread quickly throughout the tropical regions of the island chain. Just 40 years later, in 1866, the mosquitoes on Hawaii were so thick, Mark Twain wrote about their incredible numbers. Twice.
1: There are a good many mosquitoes around tonight, and they are rather troublesome. But it is a source of unalloyed satisfaction to me to know that the two million I sat down on a minute ago will never sing again. Then came an adjournment to the bedchamber, and the pastime of writing up the day's journal with one hand, and the destruction of mosquitoes with the other. A whole community of them at a slap.
0: Jumping forward to the 1900s, a naturalist cataloging the birds of the Hawaiian Islands Reported.
1: I am aware that the birds of the Hawaiian Islands are more subject to fatal diseases than those of other lands. Dead birds are, however, found rather frequently in the woods on the island of Hawaii, especially the Iwi and the Akakani.
0: While the naturalist made note of the surprising number of dead birds, he didn't try to identify the disease or its connection to mosquitoes. It wasn't until the 1950s when a researcher named Richard Warner from the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology at Berkeley, who was working in Hawaii at the time, made the connection between the disappearance of native Hawaiian birds and the hordes of mosquitoes. Warner's indictment of the invasive mosquitoes was published in today's paper. The role of introduced diseases in the extinction of the endemic Hawaiian avifauna. Endemic, native to an area, and avifauna just being a way to say bird life. By the time he started his work, nearly half of the native forest bird species were already extinct. With the goal of determining what to do to save those that were left, he started his research. As is usually true with scientific research, He needed to look to the past for some context. While quite a few amateur and professional naturalists were noting the deaths and even extinctions around them, he was the first to compile these observations into a solid hypothesis that could be tested. Unfortunately, the knowledge of the people who knew the honeycreepers the best, the native Hawaiians, wasn't respected at the time, and so wasn't recorded. But settler records showed that the native bird population originally ranged from the beaches all the way up into the high mountain forests. Warner's first suspicion was habitat destruction. Quite a bit of the forest had been cleared for ranching, farming, and other uses. But when Warner went looking for honeycreepers in lowland areas where the forest was still intact, he still found nothing. This lined up with reports written by naturalists in the early 1900s Saying that the lowland forests were empty of birds. Everything the birds needed to survive was still there, so the researchers were perplexed by the dramatic drop in bird populations. His report said The author has lived in Hawaii only six years, but within this time, large areas of forest, which were yet scarcely touched by the axe, save on the edges, and except for a few trails, have become almost absolute solitude. One may spend hours in them and not hear the note of a single native bird. The island of Oahu was especially hit hard. By 1900, six of its eleven native songbirds were already extinct. Here, too, the five remaining species had disappeared from the lower elevations, even though their habitat was intact. A colleague of Warner's lived on one of Hawaii's small outlying islands. He told Warner about a hypothesis he had based on his own experience. On his island, there were birds everywhere until a small town was built and domestic birds were brought in. The native bird population dropped dramatically. When he went looking for them, he finally had some luck, high up in the upland forests, above 1,800 feet, or 600 meters. While there, he observed something interesting. The altitude where the birds began also seemed to be where the mosquitoes ended. This sparked an idea in him. Could it be that diseases from these domestic birds were being passed to the native birds Through the bite of mosquitoes? And were there only birds left because they lived outside of the mosquito's range? Let's take an aside from the story for a second. The invasive mosquito line that he was observing was something that you might have noticed yourself if you've ever gone up into the mountains. As you climb up an elevation, it gets colder. This is counterintuitive because, as we know, heat rises, so it seems like it should be hotter up there. But it's all about pressure. The air pressure is higher at sea level, and as you move up, the pressure decreases. As the wind blows off the sea surrounding the Hawaiian islands, it's forced up the steep slopes and goes from high pressure to low pressure, allowing it to expand which cools it off. Because the mosquitoes introduced to Hawaii have adapted for tropical environments, the higher elevation is just too cold for them. So Warner decided to explore the idea. Not only did he not find these tropical mosquitoes above the cooler 660 meters, but birds captured high in the mountain forests were free of disease there seemed to be something to his friend's idea. So he came up with three tests that could definitively show if mosquitoes and the diseases they carry were responsible for the honeycreeper's deaths. First, he needed to show that native birds who had never been exposed to mosquitoes or the diseases that they carry before could, in fact, get sick from their bites. Then he needed to show that birds living high in the mountains would indeed get sick if they were brought down to the lowlands and thus in contact with mosquitoes. Then finally he needed to go into the wilderness and look for both the honeycreepers and the mosquitoes to see if this 660 meter elevation line separated them on all of the islands. Getting into the first step, During the time Warner was running his experiment, Laysan Island was mosquito and therefore malaria-free. The island's native honeycreeper species, called Laysan finches, were not only native, but were also, at the time, very abundant, and so perfect for his experiment. Bringing some of these finches to Kauai, an island where the mosquitoes were very abundant, would then provide a snapshot of what happened all those years ago when the lowland Kauai honeycreepers were introduced to mosquitoes for the first time. The laysan finches were caught and brought to Kauai in cages covered with cheesecloth to act as mosquito netting. For a month, the finches were kept inside their mosquito-proof cages, they took to captive life pretty well, singing and socializing with each other. Warner even noted their adorable habit of washing themselves with wet spinach that they were supposed to be eating. After the month of acclimation to their new surroundings, the windows were open, and the cheesecloth was removed from some of the cages, allowing the Kauai mosquitoes free access to 13 of the finches, while another 13 kept their mosquito netting, acting as a control group. The first bird died only five days later. After twelve nights, five more were dead, and after less than two weeks of being in the low-altitude, mosquito-filled environment, all of the exposed birds were dead. The finches with the cheesecloth netting were still healthy as ever. Although this clearly demonstrated the depressingly destructive capabilities of introduced mosquitoes, Warner still needed to figure out exactly how the exposure to the mosquitoes was making these birds sick and eventually killing them. The method he used to check the health of the birds and to see if their blood contained parasites are still used today and are common tests in human health. Packed cell volume is the measurement of the proportion of red blood cells in the blood. Because your red blood cells carry oxygen and CO2 around your body, the packed cell volume is directly related to how much oxygen your body has access to. Measuring it is actually quite simple. Some of the bird's blood was drawn, it doesn't take much, and put into a tube. If you've ever had your blood drawn before, just Picture a tiny version of that tube. The tube is then put into a centrifuge and spun around so fast that the heavy red blood cells are packed into the bottom of the tube. Because the glass tube is clear, Warner just had to measure the total amount of blood in the tube with a ruler, then measure the layer of red blood cells at the bottom. Warner did this procedure with the healthy birds and learn that their blood was 53% red blood cells. Anything lower than that would mean that something was making the birds sick. And 53% is a lot. These little birds need a lot of oxygen to get around. For comparison, we humans sit around 35-47%, to unless we're pregnant. Anything above that is considered an indication of disease. So in doing this test, if Warner saw signs of anemia, he ran a second test, which is called a blood smear, to see if the anemia was caused by malaria. A blood smear is just what it sounds like. A drop of blood is put on a microscope slide, then smeared around the slide so that it's super thin. You know that you've done it right, when you can put the slide on a newspaper and read the words through the blood. This thinness allows someone looking through a microscope to see individual red blood cells. Once this is done and the blood is dried, a few drops of stain are dripped onto the blood. The stain turns the parasites a different color, allowing you to see them inside of the red blood cells. Then, the tedious work of counting every single blood cell on the slide, with and without parasites, to put an exact number on just how bad the infection is. Warner saw signs of malaria infection in the finches after only three nights of exposure to wild mosquitoes. By day 11, one of the birds went from a packed cell volume of 53% to only 16%. More than one-third of the blood in that bird's body was destroyed by malaria parasites. Four hours after that blood draw was taken, the finch died of the infection. His research with the Laysan Finches only proved that a group of island birds that had never been exposed to mosquitoes or malaria before were incredibly susceptible. He still needed to prove that the birds high up in the mountains would get sick from malaria if they were brought down to their old, now-mosquito-infested, habitat. Because the population of Kauai honeycreepers was already in decline, Warner only captured eight for the experiment. They represented three different species of honeycreepers and were captured at 1,200 meters, or 3,900 feet. Unfortunately, The infection story was much the same with them as with the finches. The healthy, malaria-free birds' packed cell volume went down, and their parasite loads went up, killing them in a matter of days. During this part of the experiment, he also learned that mosquitoes actually preferred to feed on the native honeycreepers over non-native birds. The introduced birds had evolved ways of dealing with mosquitoes because they were around them before. Not only because their immune systems were good at dealing with the diseases, but also because the birds have adapted mosquito-thwarting behaviors. The introduced birds slept with their heads and legs, the two places that mosquitoes love to bite, hidden in their fluffed-up feathers. The honeycreepers, however, slept with these areas completely exposed. Finally, to complete his case against these introduced mosquitoes and the diseases that they carried, he conducted intensive searches for mosquito breeding habitat. He found mosquitoes below 600 meters, or 1,970 feet, and as he saw before, where the mosquitoes stopped, the honeycreepers began, regardless of which island he searched. He referred to this line as the Mosquito Belt. The paper includes a diagram that is devastating in its simplicity. Profile silhouettes of each of the six major Hawaiian islands sits as if the reader were in a boat, miles south of each island. These two-dimensional islands are inside of graphs, with their height on the y-axis and the x-axis functioning as sea level. Tiny dots cover the silhouetted islands, From the top until the 600-meter mark, then stop. From there to sea level, every island is completely blank. The caption reads, Below this line, the native honeycreepers are essentially extinct. You can almost picture the little dots above the mosquito belt as forests full of amazing, unique, and colorful birds that abruptly turn into those eerily quiet, empty forests, described by that turn-of-the-century naturalist. The void over the lowlands of the islands, making visible for the first time the invisible boundary, with near-certain death on one side, and hope on the other. Warner's experiment might have seemed harsh and heartbreaking, But he did what he thought he needed to, to prove not only that the native birds were in serious danger, also where that danger was coming from and how to protect them from it. He raised awareness for protecting the high elevation habitats, increasing mosquito control efforts, and enacting other conservation efforts for the birds that were left. Conservationists and bird lovers are still pushing his message today. Only 42 of the over 100 native Hawaiian birds are left. Of the 41 species of honeycreepers, only 3 aren't either extinct or endangered. 17 of these birds have been certified as extinct, while 6 of the species are federally listed as critically endangered, but haven't been seen for years. The story of the po'ouli is a great example. After a failed attempt to expand the population from the last three Po'o'uli, one of them died of a case of avian malaria, and the other two disappeared. It has now been 16 years of intensive searching, with no sign, but their status has not yet been officially changed to extinct. One reason for the continued decline of these birds, other than the introduction of domestic house cats and other predators, is global warming. The temperature gradient going up the mountains really is the number one thing keeping these birds alive. So, rising temperatures are a serious issue for the remaining birds. That invisible mosquito belt that Warner referred to is now sitting at 1,500 meters, or 4,900 feet. If the temperature rises just 2 degrees, The low-risk zone will shrink by 57% on some islands and 96% on others. Some of the forest preserves in Hawaii are entirely below the 1,800-meter mark, or 5,900 feet, and so will no longer be able to protect the honeycreepers. The volcanoes are just not tall enough and the forests just don't expand far enough up them for the birds to have any place to run. The native bird habitat has become squeezed between the mosquitoes at the lower elevation and the forest's boundary at the upper elevation. Lisa Callie Crampton, a conservation biologist, said, Without birds to populate and disperse seeds and control insects in these forests, we have no forests. Without the forest, we don't have water to drink. We don't have flood control. We don't have the underpinnings of human existence on these islands. So saving the birds is not superficial. It's imperative. Mosquito control seems to be the most obvious solution, and there are bird advocates working on just that. The removal of introduced animals, like feral pigs, goats, and deer, can keep them from creating new mosquito breeding sites. Avian malaria vaccines are even in development, but we don't know if they are going to be safe for these particular birds. Likewise, there are transgenic mosquitoes like the ones that we talked about in episode 3, or the probiotic Wolbachia mosquitoes that we talked about in episode 23, But government regulations for those and their use haven't been set up in Hawaii yet. If they are, computer models tell us that the use of sterile male mosquitoes from either genetic modification methods or the probiotic method will yield some very promising results, especially in the mid-elevation zones where the birds are the most vulnerable. I'm sorry this episode was pretty sad but there are things that you can do to help the native Hawaiian birds fight avian malaria. A lot of the projects that I talked about are run by the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, so you could donate to them if you have the means, or volunteer if you live in Hawaii. If you can't give, you can share this episode with your community. Never underestimate the power of just people caring about something. Before I close out this episode, I just want to share with you the songs of a few of these endangered birds. Next month, we'll be answering Sophia Soya's question. Are there animals who we would never suspect drink blood, but do? If you have a question about a tiny vampire, do like Sophia did, and contact us through Twitter at TinyVampiresPod, on Facebook, or through the Contact Us section of our webpage. The Agora podcast this month is the history podcast 10 American presidents. Stick around after the end of the episode for a sneak peek. Thank you to Title Card Music and Sound for our intro and outro music, and to Daniel Lane for their Birdsong recordings, which are up on dibird.com, and to Ben McGrew for reading today's quotations. Until next time, go birding!
2: The one. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. Three shots were heard to ring out as Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back seat of the open car. And Mrs. Kennedy shouted, oh no. The motorcade sped on. Ten American presidents, from Washington to Obama. Yes, we can! is a podcast narrated by guest hosts where the life and legacy of the 10 most pivotal American presidencies is explored in depth and in color My name is Dan Carlin I'm Mike Duncan My name is Zach Twomey Each show is intercut with a musical score and where possible, archive news clips to set you in the time of that presidency I have the pleasure to present to you, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. As America concludes its 2020 election cycle, this month we present the election of 1960, a closely contested election where the telegenic Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy defeated incumbent Vice President Richard Nixon. Can you imagine if this country elects a Democratic House and elects Dick Nixon, Republican
1: President of the United States? Johnson and Sam Rayburn go over to meet with him and sit down with Dick Nixon, who in 1954 called me a liar.
2: Some Republicans and many journalists believe that Kennedy benefited from vote fraud, especially in Texas, where his running mate Lyndon B. Johnson was senator, and in the northern state of Illinois.
1: This is Vince Garrity broadcasting from outside of the
2: Chicago Stadium in the heart of Chicago, where we are watching one of the finest political parades
1: seen in this country as a salute to Senator John F. Kennedy. More than 300 beautiful floats, bands, and marching units are proceeding down a two-mile road here on Madison Street in Chicago under the leadership of Chicago's mayor, Richard J. Daley.
2: These two states were important because if Nixon had won both, he would have earned 270 electoral votes, one more than the 269 needed to win the presidency. In Illinois, still unfinished. Kennedy ahead 34,850 precincts in Illinois still out, 400 of them in Cook County, a half in Chicago. Kennedy won a 303 to 219 electoral college victory and is generally considered to have won the national popular vote by just under 113,000 votes, a margin of just 0.17%. Relive this election. The first election of the modern television age on ten American presidents this month. As I look at the board here, the there are still some results still to come in. If the present trend continues, Senator Kennedy will be the next president of the United States. <coughs>